So what happens in what we're getting ready to read in just a moment starts a war, in a sense. You see, the establishment had hoped that this new up-and-coming preacher was going to win more people to their side. In fact, they hoped that this new guy that was starting to, to teach the people, that he would help them bring about the thing that they'd wanted for the Jewish people for generations. Liberation from their Roman oppressors, a new kingdom reality, a new kingdom reality with a new king that would be marked by freedom. And they were hoping that this guy would be the one that would help them do it. So, so he said things, things that, that really kind of encouraged them at first, things like the time has come, the kingdom of God is near, repent and be baptized. However, this Jewish woodworker from Nazareth has begun to say and do things that is jeopardizing the goals that they've had for their people for years. And if they don't do something about him, it's all going to start unraveling. Because you see, the battle lines are being drawn here with what we're going to read today. Where Jesus challenges the ideas of the Pharisees and what it really looks like to be a part of this new kingdom reality, this kingdom of God that he says has finally arrived. In fact, this is what he's saying. Turn from anything that doesn't lead to Jesus. Turn from anything that doesn't lead to Jesus. The word he uses is repent, repentance. And in the Greek, the word metanoia means to, to turn around, to change your mind about something, in particular, to turn, to change, to turn how you think about sin, all right? Now, the way that you and I think about repentance, okay, the, the experiences that we have with it, that is a very much a Bible word. It's a very churchy word, repentance, right? It's a very serious word. And maybe you have some experience with it. Maybe you have some experience with it from your background. And so sometimes, or maybe from, from movies, right? So maybe your background, maybe movies, is, is, is we confess and repent our sins to a priest, to a person, at a confessional. Sometimes um, your view of repentance, if you grew up, I mean, not everybody grew up in church. I grew up in church all of my life, going to church camps and conferences and retreats. And there was always a time at the end, right, of a, of a service where the preacher would call people to repent. And, and there'd be people who come forward and there'd be prayer and there'd be music and it would be such a cool time. And I remember sitting there as a kid and as a teenager and even as an adult to these conferences thinking, should I go forward? Is this a time where I need to repent. I, I really don't know what to do here. It was always really kind of awkward. Maybe your idea, your experience with repentance is simply just a quiet prayer between you and your heavenly father where you're asking God to forgive you for something that you've done. I'll never forget kindergarten. 
I stole a pair of left-handed scissors from my kindergarten teacher. I did. I did. And had them for years, all right? Just these tiny little ones, green plastic handle. Listen, if you aren't left-handed, you don't understand how difficult it is to cut with those right-handed scissors, okay? It's horrible. Anybody? Anybody know? Nope. Okay, we got an amen somewhere. Thank you. It's terrible. I stole them. And I remember feeling so guilty for it for a long time. I remember sitting in Sunday school class at church, you know, and of course, inevitably, the teacher's talking about something, and I just feel like, oh my gosh, God, forgive me for, I'm a thief. I'm five, six years old, you know, and and I'm a thief. God, if you can hear me, if you're willing to forgive me and forget about this whole thing, I'm sorry. So that was kind of like my earliest experience with repentance. But, you know, repentance seems to be one of those things for us that kind of happens in, 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 in a religious practice or it happens in a certain space or time, right? We have a difficult time sometimes blending the things in our lives that, that seem to be spiritual and then the things that seem to be just kind of everyday. And so we have a difficult time and repentance is actually part of this. Where, to where we want, we have, the, we have two domains in our life. One is the sacred, and sacred meaning anything that is, is given over to God, anything that is given to God for God, for his glory. Those are sacred things. We have our sacred practices. We have our sacred places, right? And then we have our secular sphere, our secular domain that you and I also have a foot in. And that's our everyday life. That's our everyday work life, our everyday worries, our plans, our futures, our relationships, our our practices. Like, that's secular. And when Jesus begins to speak about this new kingdom, the way that he talks about it is that he's blending these two worlds. A new reality has arrived that blends these things and everything in Jesus' kingdom becomes sacred. As does the act or the practice of repentance. We're going to read in uh, the book of Luke today. In fact, we're just going to read a couple verses. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible or have an app on your phone, uh, we'll talk about it here. But out at the Hub, we have free Bibles for you. We would love just to get a Bible in your hand. You can grab one of those afterwards. But we're going to be in Luke chapter 15. And I'm just going to start by reading Luke chapter 15, starting with verse 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, what's going on here? Jesus is eating with sinner types, and we'll talk about that here in a little bit. And, and the Pharisees are gathered, the, the religious leaders, to criticize that practice. Jesus overhears them, and so what he does is he launches into telling three stories, all right? There are three stories, as, and, and I want to read them to you, or just portions of them. The first one he launches into is a story of a lost sheep, and he talks about a shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep in the pen and goes after the one sheep and brings it back into the fold and rejoices, 
He then goes on to tell another story. They're right there in 15, and you can read that. I'm going to need that later. Um, you can go back and read that uh, on your own. But he goes into a story about a lost coin, about a woman who loses a coin in her house. She upends the place, tears it apart to find this coin. And when she does, she finds it and rejoices. Listen to what it says in verse 7 about the sheep. It says, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And then in verse 10, about the coin, in the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then Jesus launches into a third story, a story of a lost son. There's two sons. One of them takes his father's inheritance and he squanders it on sinful living, while the other son stays home and works the father's field. Well, well, the one son that had wandered off comes back repentant to the father, and the father rejoices and welcomes him and embraces him back into the family. The other son who had stayed home and obeyed the rules, was furious that his younger brother gets this warm, welcoming home just because he had repentant. And the father comes out to the older son and he says this in verse 31, he says, my son, the father said, you were always with me and everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and is found. Jesus tells three stories in response to the Pharisees' criticism. It's God's response to sinners, repentance, and celebration. I want to look first at Jesus' position on repentance, all right? So let's look first at that. How does Jesus see repentance? What does he think about it? And to understand that, you have to understand the Pharisees. Who are they? And what did they think about the Jewish need for repentance? So, so the, the Pharisees were a religious party, all right? Not so unlike our Republicans or Democrats, you have two different parties who are after similar goals but clash a lot in how to get there, okay? The Pharisees were a religious party and they numbered in the tens of thousands in Israel at the time, right? And their goal was to bring the people of Israel, they really appealed to the common person, all right? They appealed to the common Jewish person to return and adhere strictly to the Jewish scriptures, to return and adhere strictly to the Jewish practices of faith. They were strict, they were, they were passionate evangelists, okay? And they believed that if Israel would, would retain its scripture and stick to its heritage and practice its faith, that it would usher in God's new kingdom, this liberation, this freedom, okay? Some Pharisees were so passionate about their desire to purify Israel that they participated in, in guerrilla war tactics against the Roman oppressors and, and rebellions and revolts to kick out those who dirtied up Israel with their presence, okay? 
That's who the Pharisees were, and that's what they believed. And this would be much like um, if you're at B-dubs, right, having wings, and you're gathered with a bunch of Bengals fans, and you're watching it on all the TV screens. I mean, there's camaraderie there. Everybody's after the same thing. Everybody's cheering, and you're together. Now, the people who aren't around the TV screens, but they're kind of out in the periphery of the restaurant, as long as they're not wearing a Steelers jersey, all right, you feel like you can win them over. They're cool. Like they, you can win them over and they can just help cheer on your cause, right? So Jesus and the Pharisees were not so dissimilar. Get this. They weren't so dissimilar. Both Jesus and the Pharisee party both wanted and claimed that, that God's kingdom was going to come. They wanted to bring God's revelation, his return, and, and liberation for Israel. They both wanted that. Both Jesus and the Pharisees believed that if Israel would, would return to a pure faith, that God would bless them. Both Jesus and the Pharisees believed that. Okay? This is what they have in common. Jesus, many Pharisees were attracted to Jesus. Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, were both Pharisees who became followers of Jesus. Jesus often ate with Pharisees. He was invited into their homes. Understand this. What the Pharisees saw in Jesus was a big maybe. Okay? Maybe this guy, if he, they, with the way they look at Jesus is, come to our side. We hear things you're talking about. We think maybe that we can be in league together. Come over to our side. Help us, Jesus, pursue and acquire our nationalistic and religious goals for our people. Come to our side. And if you don't, we will crush you. We'll even kill you. And that's a different part of the story. Luke tells us that there were many sinners gathered around Jesus there in Luke chapter 15, okay? Many sinners. And when you look at sinners, the way that the Pharisees saw them, they were prostitutes, people of low class, people of poor reputation. They were people, they were, they were common criminals, they were tax collectors, and the, way, the reason why the Jewish people hated tax collectors is because they were Jewish people who collected taxes for Rome, and, and, and abused and terrorized and extorted their own Jewish neighbors in order to line their pockets with excess money. Sinners. And the Pharisees hated them. Because think about it. Think about it. These types, your prostitutes, your low class, your, your people of ill repute, your tax collectors, your, your, um, your criminals, it wasn't those type of people who were going to help you usher in God's new kingdom, was it? No, they're, they're not pure. They're not helping. You've you got to purify Israel. These people aren't helping. So now you understand the Pharisees' conflict with Jesus, don't you? Because he is consorting with the types of people that aren't going to help you bring in God's new kingdom reality, liberation and freedom. In fact, his open-door policy to sinners is in direct contrast to what you've been trying to do for generations. You gotta do something about this guy. Somebody has to do something about that guy. There's too much on the line. And then Jesus launches into three stories. He launches into three stories that, that talks about God seeking and welcoming sinners. These very types that he's hanging out with, that he's eating with. 
He tells three stories about God seeking and inviting and, and celebrating with sinners. And it turns out, according to what Jesus says, it's not the religiously pure people who will enter into this new kingdom that God's advancing. It's the people who aren't religious. Everything that the Pharisee party had been working for for 300 years, this guy is starting to wield power to unravel it all. In fact, what Jesus claims is that forgiveness and, and freedom and liberation from, from the sin that oppresses us is found in him. And that's very troubling. Turn from anything that doesn't lead you to Jesus. Turn from anything that doesn't lead you to Jesus. Now, that's how Jesus saw repentance. That, that was his position on the matter. So next, let's look at the posture of repentance. Now, while the Jewish religious leaders um, are, have, are watching Jesus gather with sinners, Okay, they are gathering with him. And we said they, they often ate with him. They gathering, but here's the difference. The Pharisees gathered around Jesus. And I want you to pay particular attention. The Pharisees gathered around Jesus to see if he might be able to do something for them. But do you see what Luke said, that why the sinners gathered to, around him? Sinners gathered to Jesus to hear him. And I wonder this morning which posture you approach Jesus with which posture do you approach Jesus? He can perhaps do something for you? Or you wanna hear what he has to say? You see, Pharisees weren't really evil people. Sometimes, I mean, we read scripture and we kinda of get this idea that these are Jesus' enemies, and, and, and many of them were, but they weren't evil guys. What they wanted is they wanted a, a new way of living for themselves and their neighbors. They wanted right living so that they could secure for themselves and their nation a better tomorrow. Now, that doesn't sound so bad. That's what they wanted. And really the truth is, that's, that's what we want. That's what our culture wants. That's what you want. That's how our culture says that that's how we are just accustomed to living. Find a way to grab your best tomorrow. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. We've just got the wrong posture toward it. Listen, we've got the wrong posture toward it. Listen to this. Here's the first thing. The first wrong posture we have is that we don't think we need to repent. We don't think we need to repent. We've been told in the way that we live you just live your best life. You just do you. You live your truth. You find your truth and you be, and you be real to it. Right? We don't, we don't think we need to repent. We have a culture telling us that by liber we'll, we'll liberate ourselves by finding ourselves. Do you feel that? I looked up on the New York Times 2023 bestseller list of, of the, the biggest top-selling self-help books, these books that promise to make a better you. And, and let me um, tell you, Atomic Habits, I've actually heard this one, and actually some of, the, some of these are actually really good, all right? Atomic Habits, James Clear, this is what it says. How to form good habits, break bad ones, and master the tiny behaviors that lead to remarkable results. Sounds great. 
David, David Goggins on Can't Hurt Me, he reveals that most of us tap into only 40% of our capabilities and he illuminates a path that anyone can follow to push past pain, demolish fear, and reach their full potential. You want to read that one today, don't you? All right, here's another one. I can't tell you the name of it because it has a cuss word in it, all right? <laughs> Find me afterwards and I'll whisper it in your ear, okay? Mark Manson says, get to know your limitations and accept them, all right? Then you, be you can begin to find courage, perseverance, honesty, responsibility, curiosity, and the forgiveness that you seek. Just be a better version of yourself, right? It sounds amazing. And I really could use some of that. Good habits. Push, that, push past the pain. Be curious, embrace your faults, and you're gonna find courage, full potential, and remarkable results. Is that true? I mean, we've just been told to work hard, fix yourself, better yourself, and you'll get to that new reality that we all desperately want. But how do you know when you've arrived there? Isn't there always something to fix? Isn't there always a better something out there? It's a very difficult place to be in. See, we don't repent, do we? That feels very archaic, doesn't it? That feels so, so 100 years ago, confessional booths and whatnot. It feels archaic, it feels, it feels actually kind of barbaric, to be honest with you, repentance. I don't need to repent, I just need to fix something. I just need to tweak this, I just need to fix my sexuality to get to the place I want to go. I just need to trade one relationship for a different relationship to get to my better new reality. I just need to get affirmation from this group of people, from this social media platform, and then I'll be able to live my best version of myself, and so on, and so on, and so on. So we don't need to repent. And this group of religious men in Luke chapter 15, they didn't think that they needed to repent either. They believed that their religious practices and their, 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 pure, their belief systems, the things that they believed, that that was enough to get them in and to usher God's reality back down, that God would return to earth and set them free. And all they needed was to be a little bit better. If only Israel, we say this too about the United States, don't we? If only America, if only Israel would return to her roots and be better, God's gonna bless her. You ever feel that way? I have to try to fix something about me. I gotta go back into the past to fix something, a mistake that I made. And I could, if, I could, if I could fix those things that I don't like about myself, if I could just alter them, that maybe God and I would be okay. The truth is, repentance isn't archaic and it's not outdated. Every one of us recognizes that there's something in us that needs to be fixed. We just sometimes don't know what to do about it. So Jesus comes in. He says, you want to experience the pleasure and the joy of a good father in heaven? Repent. 
And repentance looks like your heart being postured differently. It includes a sorrow for your sin, that you actually feel sorrow over your sin, and that you trust him and the Holy Spirit to do a work in your heart and behavior and a renewed relationship with God through Jesus. Turn, repent. Turn from anything that doesn't lead you to Jesus. Here's the second wrong posture we take. The first is that we don't think we need to repent. The second one is we think that everybody else needs to repent, right? Think about it, we do. I mean, we think that everybody else needs to repent. And you see the way the Pharisees looked down on the people that Jesus is gathering around. Now, you may notice that they're muttering, right, to themselves. You know what I find fascinating is? It seems to be that those of us who don't often have a regular practice, a regular practice of repentance, we tend to complain a lot. We tend to finger point a lot. There is an air of self-righteousness about us. We tend to be more unaccepting of others and unaccepting of ideas as how to reach out to others. There's a lot of grumbling that comes with lack of repentance, and I just thought maybe that we could point that out today. See, this posture says, come to my side. You should believe like I believe. You should believe about that. You should vote like I vote. Come to my side or I will crush you. And don't we live in that culture today? Believe the way I believe, vote the way I vote, think the way that I think, or you're my enemy, and I'll crush you. See, it's really easy, it's fascinating, it's really easy to look at other people and to point out their faults, their need, her need for repentance, his thing that he has to fix. If really only people thought and believed and voted and like the way that I do, this world would be a better place. But isn't it conceivable that, the, that, that her over here that we said she, what she needs to fix and, and what she's got at fault and how she did, isn't it conceivable that she's thinking right now the same exact thing about you? Maybe. Jesus says in these three stories he tells, all right, looking at these Pharisees, he says, you think, listen, church, apply this to yourself. You think your Jewish heritage and your religious practices and your meticulous rule following, you think that's gonna get you on the right side of the kingdom of God, but it doesn't, and it won't. And in the stories, in Luke chapter 15, Jesus is saying, it's better to be the person who repents than to be the person pointing at the finger of someone else who does. So turn around, run back to God and change your mind about your sin. Turn from anything that doesn't lead to Jesus. Finally, here's the third posture. We think we're too far gone. When it comes to repentance, we think we or someone else, too far gone. You, you, you've overstepped too many times. You, you, you've asked for forgiveness for the 10,000th time. You, you stole the scissors, right? 
40 years ago, and, and you can't overcome it. You're too far gone. There's an infamous, um, oddly, serial killer, Ted Bundy. He was convicted of 36 murders of women and young girls in the 1970s. And before he was executed in the electric chair in the state of Florida, he, he became a Christian in prison, gave his life to Christ, ended up cooperating with authorities to locate, he confessed to most of those crimes, committed, um, worked with authorities to, to locate the remains of most of his victims. He sat down with a, a, a Christian psychologist the day before he was executed in an interview, and I want to read to you some of excerpts of that interview. Bundy is at, at one point asked uh, to comment about a 12-year-old girl he had lured off a playground and murdered. This is his response. He says, I can't really talk about that right now. It's too painful. And I can't begin to understand the pain that the parents of these children and young women that I have harmed feel. And I won't pretend to. And I don't even expect them to forgive me. That kind of forgiveness is of God. And the interviewer asks him, you've accepted the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and you're a follower and a believer in him. Do you draw strength from that as you approach these final hours? Bundy says, I do. And I can't say that being in the valley of the shadow of death is something I've become all that accustomed to and that I'm strong and nothing's bothering me. It gets kind of lonely. Yet, I have to remind myself that every one of us will go through this someday in one way or another. You know what strikes me, humbles me, is that serial killer Ted Bundy understood something profound. No one is too far gone and everyone is too far gone. It's like what Paul says in Romans chapter three and verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are all justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Why does repentance matter? You see, the sinners who gathered around Jesus, they weren't, get this, they weren't sinners. It wasn't their actions. It wasn't their actions that made them objects of either Jesus' wrath or his love. It was their willingness to believe. Catch that. It wasn't their actions that made them fine dinner guests or enemies. It was their belief, their belief about their own sin and who Jesus is. Lack of belief and lack of belief only is what makes you a sinner. The actions are just evidence of that. It's like the man that ran to Jesus in Mark chapter 9 with a, with a, with a boy who needed healing. And he falls at Jesus' feet and says, if you can, would you heal him? And Jesus says, if? What do you mean if? 
if you believe I can do anything, and the man looks Jesus dead in the eye and says, I believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. That's exactly right. That's the posture of repentance. I believe, but help me when I don't believe. You see, repentance is a one-time thing and a lifelong practice. Repentance is a one-time thing. Jesus, I accept your forgiveness and, you've, and your blood has washed me clean. And it's a lifelong practice. It's like I come to Jesus every day, multiple times a day, and my prayer is, Jesus, I accept with confidence that your blood covers me and I receive your forgiveness freely. But I am weak and my addictions are strong and my heart is sick and I need your strength. Forgive me today, every day. Forgive me in this moment as I'll ask you to forgive me in the next and draw me closer to your heart. In the stories that Jesus tell, God is both the pursuer and the inviter. And I'm telling you right now, every person in this room, that for your entire life, your heavenly father has pursued you and invites you to come to repent, to turn away from sin, and to run back to him, and find liberation, forgiveness, and his father's new kingdom reality that is happening right now. In just a moment, we're gonna sing a song. And I wanna invite you, if you would, if you would like to come forward, there'll be two or three of us down here, we would love to pray with you. We would love to pray with you. And, and, and I would ask everyone to repent. It's a blended practice. We're not gonna just do it today. We're gonna take a posture of repentance every day. Jesus, I am confident in your saving grace. You forgive me once and forever. And I need your forgiveness every day to walk with you. You've invited me. He's inviting you. Come. Come. You know, Jesus eats with sinners. And in his culture, that was a sign of intimacy. When I sat down at a dinner table in Jesus' day in the first century, I said, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm for you. We are together. And that's what Jesus did with the sinners. You know, a, a, a year or so after this, Jesus sat down at another dinner table. It was, the, it was actually the night before he's crucified. And he sat down with another group of sinners, 12 other men who would just moments or hours later betray him and run away from him. And he ate with them. I'm with you. I'm for you. We're in this together. And I'm going to make a way for you to go to the Father. So when you repent today and in every moment of tomorrow, you can come to God and you can feel sorrow. 
and you should. And you can feel angry. You can feel freedom and relief. You can feel happy. It's all okay. But I want you to know one thing, that repentance is celebration in heaven. Always. He's not ashamed or disappointed of you. Never. The only thing he ever feels when you repent is complete and utter joy. Pray with me. Father, thank you for receiving us. You are so good. The fact that you find joy in me falling to my knees to admit to you that I am a sinner and I need grace blows my mind. But the fact that you've pursued me from before the time I was born and that you invite me to come into your arms. God, I don't even know what to do with that except to say thank you and to worship that you've led me to this place of freedom and forgiveness. Thank you, Father. I receive it. I love you. Amen.